Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. Today on Future Hindsight, we talk to Ruth Milkman. She is the Distinguished Professor of Sociology at the CUNY Graduate Center and at the Joseph S. Murphy Institute for Worker Education and Labor Studies. Her extensive research covers U.S. women workers in the 30s and 40s, the U.S. automobile industry, and more recently, low-wage immigrant workers and millennial generation social movements. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's start with some basic questions. What is the purpose of unions in the United States? Well, in the United States and actually other countries, too, the purpose of unions is to give workers a collective voice in relation to their employers. I think there's an enormous amount of evidence that workers alone are often intimidated by their employers if they have concerns about their job situation. But as a collective group, it's safer to speak up. So that's how unions first emerged historically. And actually, in every capitalist society, they pretty much exist, even in um, non-capitalist societies. Though there, they're quite different. In what way do unions protect workers and workers' rights? In general, unions in the United States, if they win legal recognition, are able to negotiate contracts or collective bargaining agreements. And those vary a little bit depending on the strength of the union and how much the employer is willing to give. But typically they do include some kind of job protection so that if a worker does speak up about a grievance on the job, he or she has some protection against retaliation from the manager or the employer. Whereas in the private sector, generally, there is no such protection. We have what's called employment at will. An employer doesn't like the way you smile that day, you're gone, and that's completely legal. In a unionized setting, that's not the case. You have some recourse. You could still be fired potentially for cause, but not in some random way. Not all unions are strong enough to get that protection, but mostly they have. So unions usually also try to improve the economic situation of their membership. That's what they're more known for. Typically in a union contract, you try to negotiate some kind of wage increase, maybe some benefit improvements. But the other less appreciated function of unions is to offer voice for workers, to allow them to speak up when they have something to say on the job without fear of being fired for doing so. Why are unions a powerful tool for civic engagement? So unionization in the United States peaked in the 1950s when roughly a third of the workforce was composed of union members. And even beyond that third, to stave off unionization, many employers matched the wage and benefit packages that unions negotiated for their members. So the effect was actually bigger than for that 35%. That was also a period when public sector unionism was pretty much non-existent. So this was all in the private sector. The public was very supportive of the labor movement in those days. Today, unions are very isolated, and there's a lot of invective in the air about them, particularly coming from right-wing organizations, and that's sort of demonized unions in many circles. In terms of civic engagement, along with providing voice on the job, unions typically have voiced in the public square workers' concerns and needs. So, for example... In 2002, California was the first state to pass a law creating a paid family leave program. Since then, other states have followed. And the labor movement was the main political force that made that happen. Most of the members of the unions in California already had the equivalent benefit that this law created for all workers, 
But nevertheless, they felt that it was their job as a representative of working people to fight for this program for the whole working population. Fighting for minimum wage increases is another thing. Most union members already earn more than the minimum wage, but unions fight for improvements in the situation of workers generally. So that's one kind of civic engagement. And that leads to other things. They often get involved in electoral struggles because they know that certain elected officials will support family leave, minimum wage, whatever other things they think are on the agenda for working people. So they end up getting involved in electoral debates as well and encouraging their members to vote a certain way and so on and so forth. Employers now do that too. Historically, that has meant an alliance with the Democratic Party and the bulk of union electoral contributions go to Democrats. Yes. So that is, in fact, one of the criticisms of unions in the U.S. is that they are closely aligned with one party. Can you explain how this has negatively impacted public opinion about unions? I'm not sure it directly has negatively impacted public opinion because it's actually only known to policy wonks. But what has happened is this. Because unions remain one of the few large-scale voices for working people and have fairly large treasuries through which they can make donations to political candidates, the other side, the Republican Party, and especially non-party right-wing organizations have targeted unions, both in the courts and in public conversations, precisely because this is one of the few things left standing that does offer resources to the Democratic candidates. Republican candidates typically have much more support than Democrats from business, although there are plenty of exceptions. So one of the few organized entities on the other side is organized labor. And so they are in the crosshairs of right-wing organizations these days. The current manifestation of that is this case that's right now before the Supreme Court, Janice v. AFSCME. There is nominally a plaintiff who's a working person who's a member of a union in Illinois, Janice, but he was selected by, sponsored by, the case was financed by right-wing organizations that really want to bring down labor unions. Let's talk about the Janus case. Okay. What exactly is being argued in front of the Supreme Court? Can I give a little historical background yes, first? Yes, give us the historical background and then the case and then what we suspect is going to happen. In the private sector, unionization rates are extremely low. They're lower than they have ever been since the 1920s in the single digits between 6 and 7 percent. In the public sector, that's not the case. Government workers are much more highly unionized. Roughly a third are unionized today. So that's where the action is. As far as the anti-union people are concerned, they want to reduce that number down to a trivial number like in the private sector. How can you do that? Historically, public sector unions have often negotiated what are called various things nowadays, agency fees, fair share fees, which means that if you're a member of a public sector union and you choose not to join the union, you still pay a fee to the union, not dues, but a fee, usually very close to the amount you would pay if you were a member in dues. And the logic is because the law requires unions to represent everyone in the bargaining unit, whether they're members or not, that they should pay their, quote, fair share. They should not be allowed to be free riders and let other people pay for the services that they're receiving. So that's the logic. And that's been established, including in Supreme Court cases, for decades. Now that practice is being challenged. And the argument is that this violates workers' rights to free speech. 
that they have to pay this money even if they don't agree with the union. So there was a case a couple of years ago called Friedrichs, which was a California case that also went all the way up to the Supreme Court. Just as the case was about to be decided, Antonin Scalia died. And it was widely expected that he would vote against the union position on this case. Instead, it was a four to four decision. And because the lower court had decided in favor of the union to allow agency fees, that lower court decision can, you know, prevailed. And so that's still the case today. Then came the Janus case, which was sponsored by the same entities that had sponsored Friedrichs. And they even expedited it by foregoing various appeals along the way. And they wanted it to go right to the Supreme Court. So it's there now. And as you know, in between, after Scalia died, there were various political maneuvers to prevent Obama from appointing a replacement. And so instead, we have Neil Gorsuch, a Trump appointee. And everyone expects that he will vote as Scalia would have, that is, against AFSME, the union that is on one side of the case, and for Janice. And if that happens, it means that agency fees will no longer be an accepted practice. That will deplete the treasuries of public sector unions very dramatically, very rapidly, everyone expects. So that's why it's so significant. It's basically about money. Why do they care about this money? Because it is often used to support Democratic candidates. It will have enormous political ramifications. Why would somebody decide not to be a part of a union? Well, because they save money. It's that simple, really. And already we've seen previews of what's likely to happen nationally after Janice, because some states have prohibited agency fees here and there. And one of the things that has happened elsewhere is that once these legal decisions are made or laws are passed, the same organizations that brought the cases do a lot of outreach to union members through Freedom of Information Act request lists of all the people who are union members. They communicate to them directly. Did you know that you don't have to pay for these services anymore? You can save X amount of money and you'll still get all the benefits. So people might not have heard of Janice now, but they'll know about that once it happens, assuming it does happen the way we're predicting. So that's what's in it for someone is to not have to pay union dues, which are not huge amounts of money. And actually all the data show that you sort of get more back than you pay because, you know, you're likely to earn more money if you're in a union and so on. In the short run, it's true that you would get all the benefits without paying for them. Of course, ultimately, the union will become weaker if no one's paying or if fewer people are paying. And so then those benefits will erode. And that's the other goal here. On the other hand, I have to say, we've seen in states that do not have public sector unions, essentially, in West Virginia, Oklahoma, Arizona, teachers are organizing and going on strike. And in a way, that is more disruptive to the educational institutions than collective bargaining itself, which usually proceeds without work stoppages. That's sort of one of the reasons it became established in the first place is that there was it was a way of regulating labor disputes rather than allowing mass strikes all the time, which most people find inconvenient and disruptive. Right. I think most people don't think about it that way. They think that then suddenly we will get cheaper labor for everything, and they don't think that people will go on strike. I just want to say teachers are about 30% of all union members in the United States today. So this is a huge chunk of who we're talking about, and right. they're mostly women. 
they are the people who are teaching the next generation in public schools all over the country. When people think of unions, they think of hard hats and they think of men with cigars and stuff like that. The labor movement has really changed, mm-hmm. partly because public sector unions are the bulk of all union membership. So you have teachers, nurses, social workers, librarians. That's the typical profile of a union member today. That's a good point. You just spoke about part of why there is a decline uh, and the labor movement of mm-hmm. unionization. What are some other factors that have contributed to a decline in union participation? When you say participation, you mean membership, I assume. I mean membership. Yeah, because there, there is also the issue of how active individual workers are in their unions, which is different. The biggest single factor of the research that I and many other people have done shows is employer opposition. Going back to our original conversation about the history, it's not that employers ever welcomed unions But when they first were established in the New Deal period in the 1930s and 40s, and World War II was really the period when they consolidated, they became part of the landscape, reluctantly, but nevertheless accepted by employers as a force in the industry that had to be reckoned with. And over the years, employers grew more and more intolerant of unions and began to attack them. Various things contributed to this. One was the changes in the economy itself. So industries where um, unionization was strong, like manufacturing have declined as a share of the overall workforce. But also within manufacturing, there's been a growing non-union sector. And then in industries that can't go anywhere, that are not vulnerable to outsourcing, think about construction, for example, there has been a very deliberate campaign against unions on the employer side. Construction is a complicated industry, but I'll just give you an example. In the case of California in the 1980s and 90s, there was a time when residential construction was basically wall-to-wall unionized in California in the peak period of unionization. So the employer groups decided that they didn't really like that anymore. They were tired of unions. In any recession, construction is one of the industries that's very sensitive and tends to decline pretty dramatically. And so in each recession, the question is, how is it going to come back? Which companies are going to get the contracts? Starting in the 80s in California, many companies developed what they called double-breasted companies, which is something that has been fought for in the courts and is now legal. What that means is the same entrepreneur will have a union branch and a non-union branch and bid on jobs. So if they bid with the non-union branch on the jobs, they can bid lower and they may be more likely to get a contract. That began to happen more and more. And pretty soon, residential construction became predominantly non-union. The unions didn't fight back as effectively as they might have, partly because there was a building boom at that time in commercial construction. So the workers just who were unionized moved into that, and they weren't complaining that much because they had work. And meanwhile, residential became a completely non-union industry. The workers who populated the union sector no longer wanted those jobs because they were much more poorly paid, no benefits, sometimes all cash, all the kinds of abuses you hear about, wage theft and everything began to emerge. And employers then started hiring immigrants. So the employers degraded the jobs quite deliberately. I mean, they systematically went about doing that. And that became non-union territory. So that's happened in many sectors of the economy. If you don't mind my adding a little point about the immigrant piece, I think white workers today are justifiably enraged about what's happened to the good jobs that they used to have access to, especially non-college educated 
workers, but they're targeting the wrong people when they fall for the xenophobic attacks on immigrant workers. Those workers are just as much victims as they are. It's the employers who have systematically restructured the work that should be the target of that anger. And unfortunately, that's not the case. There's one more factor that I think is really important in answering your big question about how come unionization has declined so much, and that's deregulation. Starting in the late 70s and continuing ever since, the U.S. and other countries to have been on a kick of letting the market decide everything and eliminating government regulations whenever they can think of a way to do it. The way I look at it is there's these those three things, the decline of manufacturing, direct attacks by employers on unions through things like double breasting, and then finally deregulation have been the big factors contributing to this. So if you were a trucker and let's say you were part of a union during the heyday, what did your life look like then? And what does your life look like now, let's say, as an independent contractor? What's the big difference to the worker? So in the old days, you're a union member, you get paid by the hour, you have benefits, you have health insurance coverage through your employer, you have a pension plan with defined benefits at the time that you retire. A defined benefit, just to be clear, is getting a monthly stipend. Right. So a 401k, which is the only kind of pension many private sector workers have access to today, is a voluntary thing. It's sort of like a savings plan that's got some tax protection. So if you contribute on a monthly basis, then when you retire, you'll have that money available to you. A defined benefit pension, which is increasingly rare outside the public sector, is you get a monthly amount. And you are paying for it all along, but not in a voluntary way. It's just built into the compensation package that you have. In the old days, a trucker who typically would not have a college education, maybe a high school degree, would get paid for every hour he worked, plus time and a half for overtime and those benefits. Today, a self-employed trucker typically is paid by the job. No compensation for waiting around for the truckload. So, for example, at the nation's ports, where all the imports that this country devours come in, you might wait in line at a port for a container to transport somewhere with your truck for an hour or two. You're not paid a penny for that time, and you're paid by the job. So you're paid to take that container to some destination. If you run into traffic and it takes longer, you eat that difference. You also pay for the truck itself, all the expenses associated with repairing it, fueling it, etc., and you have no benefits unless you buy them yourself. So it's very different, much more precarious. And actually, what we've seen is, it, again, a shift in who does the work. Some people made the transition, but often other populations replaced them. Right. It's a very different kind of job, a very different yeah. kind of pay. There's a book about it called Sweatshops on Wheels, the title of which kind of sums up the situation. What is the effect of this decline on society at large? Well, the biggest single effect is the so-called hollowing out of the middle class. There was a time when a non-college educated worker who was full, employed full time and, you know, could earn a, a middle class income. That is increasingly impossible. There are exceptions here and there, mostly it's in the unionized sectors that remain. But so we have the working poor and we have the 1%. <laughs> it's more like the 20% professionals and managers who have decent incomes then there's the 1% who have gargantuan incomes. There's not much in between anymore, which is new. This has all unfolded since the 1970s. So it's another way of thinking about the growth in inequality and in incomes and in economic security in the country. Deunionization has made a big contribution to that growing inequality. It's not the only factor, but it's a big one. 
how do you think the political activism of young people can maybe revamp or revitalize or maybe not at all completely abandon the labor movement? What do you think is going to happen? Well, I'm not very good at predicting the future, but I'll say a few things. So one is, if you look at the age profile of who union members are today, mm-hmm. it's very top-heavy, partly because you get job security if you're unionized. People tend to not give up those jobs, so they age out of them gradually. So young people have the lowest unionization rates. Nevertheless, if you look at polls about attitudes toward unions, millennials in particular are extremely positively inclined to unions. We have seen in a few sectors little glimmers of possibility. For example, in sectors like the media industry, a lot of online news sites have recently voted to unionize. And those are college-educated millennials, basically, who populate those places. Often people are paid by the piece of work instead of a salary, and they want something more than that. It's not big numbers. It's not going to turn around those percentages we spoke about earlier, but it suggests that there's some potential there. The LA Times um, recently unionized. Um, that wasn't just millennials. There were some older folks there, too. But um, that's a really interesting case just because um, 100 years ago, the LA Times was the bastion of anti-unionism in Los Angeles. They actually um, called, they had a on their masthead a slogan that LA was the citadel of the open shop, and they were famous for this. So now, 100 years later, they've unionized partly because of mismanagement. You know, there's an old saying in the labor movement, the boss is the best organizer. If a place is really badly run, then workers get annoyed and often turn to collective bargaining. So that's part of what happened there. There's one more example of that comes to mind, which is the Fight for 15, it's sometimes called. It's a campaign to improve the situation of fast food workers, McDonald's and so on. This is actually bankrolled by one of the largest private sector and public sector unions in the country. The Service Employees International Union, SEIU, is financing this campaign. They have not yet obtained a single member as a result. But they have changed the situation of fast food workers in many parts of the country because this campaign has led to the $15 an hour minimum wage campaigns in many places that have been successful. So that's sort of like what we talked about at the beginning, where some unions are willing to invest in campaigns that don't benefit their own membership very directly, but transform the situation of working people more generally. I have a question about the bottom line. Because this is, of course, always the issue. People say, yes, of course, we want people to make more money and be a part of a union as a concept. But then the company will not survive. It'll go bankrupt. And then that person will have no job. You can't really organize one firm at a time. The traditional idea about that is to take wages out of competition. Mm-hmm. In other words, you organize the entire labor market in a, in a city or a sector Take the hotel industry. If you mm-hmm. just organize one hotel and somehow the employer agrees to double the wages, I'm just making this up, of the workers in that hotel, that hotel is going to go out of business. That's right. But if you organize the entire city's hotels, they're all paying that wage. And so it's not a problem anymore. That doesn't affect the competition among the hotels. So now, like in fast food, the effort was to organize the whole industry, which mm-hmm. is a tall order in that case. But if you're in one local labor market, something like hotels, which can't move around, It is possible to do. What are the messages and strategies that work for future recruitment of unions or of a future movement? Maybe it's not unionization per se, uh-huh. but something that gives voice to the workers right. and protects their rights and gives them 
so the I opportunity think, mm-hmm. for jobs with dignity and all that. I think where we've seen successful organizing is where they were fighting not only for themselves, but for the community. You may remember in West Virginia when that strike took place, first they were offered some more money for themselves. They said, no, we want um, this for all public sector workers, and we want a better budget for the school district. We want to be able to have textbooks that aren't out of date and not have to spend our own money on paper for the students. The teachers define their interest as not just more money and so on, but better education. The other thing that has been very effective is when we're talking about workers at the very bottom of the labor market. Fast food workers are a good example there, where the public knows that these are not living wage jobs, that people can work very hard, long hours, and still not earn enough to pay their rent. There's a huge sector of the labor market that's completely without representation, and people are making the minimum wage or just a little bit more. So that's begun to change with these minimum wage campaigns, but it's very spotty and very different in different parts of the country. Those campaigns are very popular. There's tremendous public support for raising the minimum wage. Americans don't like the fact that inequality has grown so much in this country. They see the 1% riding high, and then they see people struggling to just survive. And historically, that's not the way this country was. There was less inequality, and I think many people want to bring that back. So unions are one way of doing so if they can present themselves in a way that communicates that message. But but any employer today in the private sector will oppose them. So they're really up against a lot. You have to do everything right to win a union campaign nowadays. If you make one mistake, that's it, because the employers have all the cards, legally mm-hmm. and otherwise. Is there a future where unionization isn't necessary, but the benefits that unions have provided over the last few decades can still be there. Is it possible to have a work environment where people do have pensions and good health care? And if you're a teacher, that the budget is appropriate to the needs. You have new textbooks, you have funding for paper, and and you have good wages, all this. Is that is that at all a future that's possible? I think it's possible. I mean, if you look around the world, there are many countries that are doing a lot better than we are in the, in all those areas. In the private sector, in the, in the sort of purely capitalist environment of the private sector, however, employers these days, partly because of financialization and everything, have a very short-term orientation toward maximizing their profit this quarter. Having a union ask for more money is not going to assist them in. They may not recognize the long-term benefits of this kind of arrangement and instead fight it with all their might. Without collective representation for workers, it's hard to see how those benefits would spread through the private sector. You can also imagine progressive legislation that would bring some of these benefits to everyone. And one of the experiments that's underway right now is creating wage boards. They would be tripartite institutions, meaning government, labor, and employers would all be talking to each other and creating standards for labor in a particular industry. So actually in the fast food campaign, that has taken place here in New York. The wage standards were set through that process. So there's some talk now in circles of people who care about workers' issues about trying to replicate that model in other sectors and in other places. And I suspect if there is any kind of labor movement revival, it won't look like what we had in the heyday of the AFL-CIO. It will look like something else yet to be imagined. Why is now the right time to engage on this issue? Any time is the right time to engage on this issue, but the main 
I think, impetus right now is the incredible precarity that many workers experience in sectors like retail, where they don't know their schedule from one week to the next. They don't know how many hours and therefore how much money they're going to have. They don't know if they're going to have a job the next day. Inequality is growing like crazy, and everybody is aware of that and not very happy about it. The rents are too high, as one of those candidates here in New York is always complaining, and wages are not going up. We are at a kind of potential inflection point. In a way, the growth of power on the right wing of the political spectrum has actually begun to energize people on the other side to think, you know, this is getting so extreme, we have to do something. So perhaps organizing workers will be part of that. Here's my last question. What can we do as ordinary citizens? Public sector workers, one thing that they can do, and there are a lot of us, I'm a public sector worker, I work for the City University of New York, so I am in a situation where the Janus decision will make a difference. One thing people can do is pledge to be union members, not just fee payers, if and when that decision comes down. The other thing that's begun to happen is this phenomenon, some people call it alt-labor, trying to form new kinds of workers' organizations that do include the self-employed. An example here in New York would be the Taxi Workers Alliance, which until the rise of Uber and the other ride services was very successful in organizing the Yellow Cab workers, and they're all considered independent contractors. Nevertheless, they organized and they were able to pressure the Taxi and Limousine Commission to improve the situation of drivers. Uh, That's kind of evaporated with the rise of Uber. I think the main thing is to just be open-minded and not take at face value what you hear on Fox News about labor unions and begin to find out for yourself what is this really about? Where did it come from historically? Why is it under attack now? Unions are important for workers. They no longer have the power they once possessed, and they're actively losing more and more ground. The stereotype of the average union member being men in hard hats is inaccurate. Male and female union membership is about even. The days of unionization may be over, but as we've seen with recent teacher strikes in various states, labor disputes are unlikely to cease. No matter where you stand on union labor, there is no question that we need to find a way forward in which workers have good wages, job security, health care, pensions, and perhaps most importantly, dignity. On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Congressman Beto O'Rourke, U.S. Representative for El Paso, Texas. He serves on the House Armed Services Committee and the House Committee on Veterans Affairs. He is now running for U.S. Senate. So 254 counties total. Um, We've almost visited every single one of them, and we will visit every single one of them um, before this is over, and many of them many times over. Um, And I think that's the way, you know, along with not taking any PAC money, uh, no corporate help, no special interest contributions, that's the way not just to run a campaign, not just to win this race, but I would argue to get our democracy back and to make sure that elected government is responsive to people, to human beings, um, to, to their interests and concerns. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fadak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services.